This is episode 004 with myself, Dan Keeley. This is the Are We OK UK podcast, the podcast on a mission to empower the UK to speak up when we're suffering so that together we can show future generations how it's done. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the show begin. What's up, Dream Team? How are we doing? It's Friday the 23rd of November, 2018, and on Monday this week, it was International Men's Day and had an awesome opportunity to head over to Uxbridge to give a talk at Aristocrat Technologies, who invited me in to share my story and to really promote the power of opening up to the people to the left and right of us in the workplace with whatever we're going through. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but we recorded the whole talk for your benefit now. I would suggest grabbing a coffee and definitely giving yourself a break halfway through because it's about 35 to 40 minutes long, which is a little bit different than the normal podcast format um, but we really hope you enjoy it and you know why we do these things guys it is to empower the UK to speak up when we're suffering so that together we can show future generations and future workplaces how it's done enjoy um, right, I'd like to thank you all for taking some time out of your day welcome to International Men's Day <laughs> I think there's probably more women in this room than there are men. (laughs) Um, You know, it wasn't a day that we wanted to disappear and play around the golf. We wanted it to be meaningful and um, it hit some some strong topics that uh, maybe men don't really talk about. And we've got Dan Keeley here today, um, who is uh, one of the leading mental health uh, campaigners in the UK. Um, he's here to talk about um, his experiences um, and the journey that he's been on over the last five years. Um, the sort of the topics that we want to cover are the positive male role, uh, male role models and stigma um, around suicide in young men. Um, hopefully, um, Dan's talk and his experiences will um, open up your your train of thoughts on being open and having those conversations, the courageous conversations with your family and friends. Um, so um, without further ado, I'll hand it cool. over to Dan. So welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, real pleasure to be here. I was just chatting to your colleagues. Um, I haven't had an extensive police check, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's right. I'm sure it's fine. DDS and everything. Um, yeah, Matt, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here, especially so because it is International Men's Day. Um, I didn't actually know that I was speaking to uh, you know a gaming tech firm until uh, the past couple of weeks actually. So you know, as soon as I found out who I'd be speaking to, I was really really intrigued. And I was like, oh, okay, you know. And the first thing was obviously for me personally, being an outsider at that same time, was the whole sort of, you know addiction side of things, or just kind of the, the space that you guys work in must be, you know, just a, yeah, just that sensitivity to the audience that you, you deal with. Um, I just can't imagine the world that you're in, but that's not for me to, to touch on any of that stuff. Like Matt said, I'm just here to, to share my story and connect with you guys face to face. And and the one thing really before I dive straight in is that, you know, I always just like to put it out there that this is a, a safe space um, in this room right now and wherever you're watching around the world, apparently. Um, it's a safe space for me to share some of the stuff that I share. Um, and of course, for any of you guys that have got any questions during my talk, um, or, or afterwards, of course. So, you know, please feel really welcome to ask me any question about the experiences I've been through, some of the stuff I believe in, and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, absolute pleasure to be here. I absolutely love this stuff. There is nowhere else 
in the world that I'd rather be. You know, I love this kind of you know face-to-face -face connection with you guys, um, and you know, collaborating with passionate you know organisations that really care about creating this um, you know life-enhancing environment for, for you guys to come to work every day and a culture where we're you know uh, we look out for the people around us. So yeah, again, just a huge thanks to these guys for for welcoming me. Um, so I always start my talks with quite a bold statement, but bear with me, um, and that is that I love every single one of you in this room, um, and I know that's a bit of a bold statement to say, but the reason I say that is because um, I absolutely believe that every single one of us uh, is suffering or struggling with something. I absolutely believe it. I think every single one of us at any given point is struggling or suffering with something. And the reason that I say that is because of um, the journey that my mind has taken me on over the past six years, what I like to call this mental adventure that I've been on over the past, um, yeah, you'll, you'll see why I call it that. But yeah, so um, yeah, it's been, quite a, it's been quite a journey over the past six months where the adventure continues and you know, the fact we're in this room um, is evident of that. So the story really starts in January 2012. I'll try and do a timeline thing. Uh, so January 2012 is really when the story starts. So up until that point, you know, I'd always been a pretty passionate, enthusiastic, um, creative person, pretty sporty, pretty creative. And my career path was always going to be one of those two things generally. So you know, I was always the first one to sports training, last one to leave, qualified as a skiing instructor, president of the lacrosse club at uni, volunteering for loads of sports clubs. Um, and just generally speaking, it was just all about you know, using, I guess, my natural energy and enthusiasm to bring people together as part of the community and make them feel welcome wherever they are. And that's generally sort of been how my career path has progressed. So we get to January uh, 2012. And after looking for a role where I could apply sort of my background in sports development and my passion for social impact, um, you know, I was looking for that, that role where I could bring the two together. And, um, and in January, 2012, I came across these two words together, snow sports charity. So there's a skiing and snowboarding charity that takes inner city young people, disadvantaged inner city young people away to the mountains. So I was like, fuck me. I was like, this is written for me. Um, you know, I couldn't believe it. After all this time of, like I said, qualifying as an instructor and that background in sports development, the passion for social impact, I thought, wow, this role's written for me. So I just jumped on a train, went down there, knocked on the door, I said, look, this is me. You know, I, I really want to work for you guys, got the role. And I remember on day one when I got given the position, I was, you know, if you think this is sort of enthusiasm, I was bursting out of my skin to start at this role, to, you know, to build this community around the charity, to develop our partnerships across the industry, and ultimately to change the lives of these inner city young people. And so for January, February, March, April, May, I was just giving it the beans. So I was really giving it the beans. And um, simply put, I stopped looking after myself. I just stopped looking after myself, you know, I was just so tunnel visioned on changing the lives of these young people as much as I possibly could. And I really did stop looking after myself. I stopped really um, looking after my nutrition, you know, the thought of spending two hours in the kitchen to cook a nutritious meal was, um, it just seemed like a waste of time because I could develop a new partnership or what have you. Um, I wasn't really getting much sleep. So throughout those periods, there was a two week period where I had an average of an hour and a half sleep. Uh, every single night. So I just wasn't really sleeping. I was just getting up at two, three o'clock in the morning and my wife would come out in the morning and just see streams of paper all, all over the living room on these different ideas and different events and all this stuff that was going to, you know, apply to the charity. 
Um, and of course, a few alarm bells were going off, but I think generally speaking, a lot of people just thought it's still, it's still Dan, it's still me, uh, just a slightly heightened version of me. Um, you know, so I was just absolutely really giving it the beans through those first five months. And then we booked this two-week holiday out to Italy in June of 2012. And uh, this is me and Georgie, she was my fiance at the time, she's awesome, uh, she's my wife. So we booked this two-week holiday out to Italy. And I remember even on the way to the airport, everybody was saying, Dan, just please slow down. You know, please just switch off your phone, you know, just go out on this holiday and relax. Just go out there and just completely switch off. But after five months of my mood escalating, I physically couldn't slow myself down. <coughs> and and uh, I genuinely believe that, you know, I was the next Mark Zuckerberg. You know, I, I started thinking that, you know, if I'm going to have this impact on these disadvantaged young people, why wouldn't I try and apply that same kind of level of energy and enthusiasm and commitment to, you know, supporting all of society? And then if I was going to stop there, why wouldn't I try and change the world and so I genuinely believed I was you know I was, I was like figuring out these answers and I was going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg and then the next Steve Jobs and even at the airport I was going up to people that looked pretty tech savvy I was like you know I'm going to need you on my team just watch the space just keep an eye out for me I'm going to want you on my team and I was just going up to people in airports and you know you could tell I was starting to lose my mind but um, I genuinely believed this stuff and then when we got out to Italy I genuinely believed at this point that I was the chosen one. So after six months of my mood just escalating and escalating and escalating, I went from the impact on the young people to society, to the world, Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, and now with every sort of atom of my being to my core, I started believing that I was the chosen one. It was, it was crazy. And so I believed I'd written a New Age Bible fit for 2012. Um, I was spending money I didn't have, so when Georgie was down by the pool at this hotel we are staying at, I was going up to, up to the family and saying, um, you know, I want to help you develop your hotel, we're going to renovate and everything else, and uh, I bought a bottle of wine for every hotel room in this hotel, I didn't have the money, uh, got some really nice smiles down at breakfast the next day, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, but obviously all the alarm bells were going off by this point, so, you know, so Georgie calls her mother and my mother to come out to be with us because it was evident that the alarm bells were already going off. Don't worry, I do, I do choke every now and then. Um, and, uh, you know, all the alarm bells were going off and the hotel staff were amazing and they just said to Georgie, look, there's a, there's a specialist hospital about an hour away, a psychiatric hospital, so let, let's see if we can get in there just, you know, to get into a safe space. Um, so we did, so we pack up, uh, we pack up the Fiat 500 that we had, and I was the only one insured on the car. And at this point, to be in the frame of mind that I was in, I was happy to go along with anything, as long as it didn't get in my way of trying to ease, at this point, trying to ease as much of the world's suffering that was going on at the time. And I was really looking to get to that answer. What was that point of singularity that I could get to, that message that I could share on a global level, um, to ultimately make the world what I believed was the answer, was to slow down and follow their hearts and things were about to get pretty dangerous so we pack up the car like I said I was the only one insured on the car but it was fine so we leave the hotel and we start making our way over to this specialist hospital an hour away so it's now sort of getting up to peak rush hour in, nor in northern Italy and it was, it, was, it was getting too dangerous so 
hold on, we're in Italy, so yeah, this side. So we pull over, pull over on the hard shoulder, and Georgie looks the car, and I scramble out the car, and I was like, I need, I need, I need to get this stuff out of my system. Like there are people suffering right now. I feel like I've got the answer to help these people. I need to get this out of my system in the biggest, most impactful way I could think of at the time. And that was to scramble out the car. And then I start running down the hard shoulder with this motorway at rush hour in Northern Italy. And I strip down to my khaki shorts. And I start getting my hands up in the motorway. And I start stopping the slow lane, one lane at a time, slow down, middle lane, fast lane. And I backed up the traffic for five to 10 miles and I felt like I'd done it. You know, I felt like I was, it was crazy. I felt like I'd stopped the world in that moment. That's a huge demonstration that's like, everyone, let's slow down, let's follow our hearts. And I can still picture the face of that first car, this little red Fiat Panda. I can still pick this guy up in the crowds at the front of this traffic because all my senses were on overloads. And it was like Red Bull pumping through my body, uh, which I would not evangelize by any means because what was to come is pretty catastrophic. But there I was, still on this motorway, all my senses were on overloads and I backed up the traffic and I started just letting one car go. Slow down, one at a time, follow your heart, slow down, on you go. Which seems a bit crazy, but it's quite funny. Like just, you know, these guys like looking at me. You know, like, what, what the hell are you doing? So slow down, follow heart. And the irony was, of course, that I was going at 200 miles an hour and this was never gonna end well. So Matt, we're gonna switch to a short video that I've got to play, which is the best visual representation of what this was like in this moment, how catastrophic it was about to become. And this was the best visual that I could show you to demonstrate what that feels like. Night, or my phone watching YouTube, so don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. I recorded that on my phone last night. Oh, so that, yeah, that is absolutely the best visual that I could show you guys because I think it's just such a great demonstration that if you do not listen to those people around you, then of course, you know, things can get pretty catastrophic. And for me, that's exactly what was about to happen. So the ambulance team are there, the police officers are there, they strap me down in the back of an the ambulance, they fast-track fast me to the psychiatric ward, and they lock me in a room, strap me to a bed, and they just start absolutely pumping me, absolutely pumping me full of drugs, like enough to sedate the sumo wrestler, just to make me slow down and, uh, and sleep and eat, and slow down and sleep and eat. And uh, it was just a really confusing time, you know, I was over there for 
a good sort of two and a half weeks in this psychiatric ward and you know I was just sleeping for 15 16 hours a day and then I'd wake up and I'd be starving hungry and I'd be swaffing down this food and I'd look up and Georgie's mum would be there and I was like why why is she here and then you know I thought we we're setting up our headquarters in the Coliseum like why am I here you know we should be you know those police officers were going to be my head of security the ambulance team were going to be my chief medical officers you know what you know, it was just a really confusing weird <coughs> two weeks um, in that in that in that psychiatric ward and the strange thing is is that you know the other people in there as well you know so much of it all made sense you know the reasons that they were in there as well um, but it was a very confusing period uh, so after two and a half weeks two nurses from the British Embassy come out and they escort me and and, and George and my family back to the UK and I was fast-tracked into the Maudsley Hospital in South London which is one of the UK's um, sort of most uh, prominent mental health psychiatric wards in the UK but it's not a nice place to be it's really not a nice place to be so I was in there for another two and a half weeks and, and obviously got the diagnosis of bipolar disorder um, and then I was discharged and then without oversimplifying it the back end of 2012 was just a really dark chapter because essentially I'd gone that high you know I had a hundred percent conviction that I was the chosen one and then here I was with I didn't have any faith in in my mind anymore I couldn't trust my thoughts and words that were leaving my lips I couldn't trust my mind I couldn't trust who I was and so I completely couldn't function and so I was bed bound and we have an ensuite bathroom which was two meters away and even just trying to walk two meters to brush my teeth, there was just no point. I just didn't see the point. And I just lost all faith in myself and purpose and you know, just this, I felt like I was burdening everyone around me, didn't socialize, all that stuff. So it was a pretty dark chapter. And you know, I wasn't too far from, from taking my life. But there was this turning point. And it's amazing how these things can happen that we're getting towards December, 20, you know, the end of that year, and, and Georgie just says, look, if you can just take the 10 minute walk up to Sainsbury's, you know, to go and just pick up some milk and some cereal, I'll be so proud of you. So I did, so snooze, 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 2pm, 3pm, so okay, let's do it. So I got dressed, I walked up there, picked up the milk, that was fine. And then I turned into aisle 14 at Sainsbury's, and I was in this debilitating state of shock. I, you know, I couldn't make a simple choice between bran flakes and cornflakes, which is all we ever typically have. I couldn't make a simple choice because I couldn't, out of fear of getting it wrong. It was awful and my body was sort of crying internally. And I was just in the supermarket and I was just hiding it from the public. I hadn't really gone out in public for six months. And I was just, you know, just in this awful state where I was, my body was just crying internally and I was broken. So, you know, eventually I left the supermarket with bran flakes. Uh, it took the 10 minute walk home and on those 10 minutes I just made a conscious decision that I need to start again. I need to absolutely strip it all back and start again. That was the only way that I was ever going to recover and be happy again, not just for me but for the people around me as well. And I did. And so I started this really cathartic process. I gave myself permission to put myself first and do whatever I needed to do just to get myself back up to the level where I could function. and not necessarily pursue happiness, but this you know, sense of fulfillment and pride. And just to get myself back to a level where, it's, where I was just okay, that's where I wanted to get to. So I started this really cathartic process of just decluttering physical items that weren't really adding value, relationships which I didn't really feel were necessarily serving me and my mental health, responsibilities I just couldn't commit to. Um, and then I just started going 
you know, taking it to, to different levels. So, you know, the calm and quiet space was really working for me. Um, I started just decluttering my phone with apps and, and stuff I didn't use. Emails, I didn't have a single email in my inbox that I, I didn't know about. It was all, you know, tidied away. And there wasn't even like a single receipt uh, in our bedroom, um, which I didn't know what it was for. You know, I really started that cleansing, decluttering process and discovered minimalism, which is what this is basically, which is just that lifestyle choice to rid ourselves of life's excess so we can focus on what matters most, um, which for me at the time was absolutely my health, number one, but then my relationships, my passions, growing as an individual and being in service to other people. But above all of that, you know, I couldn't do any of that other life-affirming, fulfilling stuff if my mental health wasn't in a good place itself. So it really started to work. So 2013, I started going back to work part-time. My employers were amazing, just bearing with me. Um, 2014, 15, 16, and I just start sharing my story. You know, I've always been expressive, always, always been open about everything anyway. Um, so people were just finding value in just me being open about it. And three amazing things really started to happen. You know, every time I shared my story, whether it was just at a barbecue or a dinner party, um, or progressively on different stages, I felt lighter every time I shared my story, exactly like I am now. Other people, uh, I started building an amazing support network around me, who I call my dream team, who just start keeping art for me. And then the most amazing thing was, is that nine times out of 10, other people started sharing their stuff with me. I was like, this is unbelievable. And you know, it just started, planted that seed, and this belief that every single one of us has something going on, whether it's a struggle or they're suffering. Somebody, everybody, all of us has something going on at any one given moment. So, so obviously I'm like, okay, people are finding value in the message, just sharing my story. I'm very ha happy, comfortable, you know, diving, in, diving deeper into anything I'm sharing, answering all these questions, what have you. So I knew I had to create a big platform to share my story on a, on a big stage, basically. I wanted to create you know, this huge project. So it's kind of like this five-year celebration of having put myself first, I'm a mental health first, building an amazing support network around me and getting this message out there on a bigger scale. So I couldn't think of a better way to do that, looking ahead to 2017, than by returning to Italy. But this time, I was going to run solo and self-supported from the Colosseum, well, by the way, I didn't set up any headquarters, but from the Colosseum, 1,250 miles from the Colosseum in Rome, all the way back to the London Eye, over 65 days. So I'm now speaking to you exactly one year on from having completed that running adventure, which I called Rome to Home, which I've got my slides in the wrong order, bear with me. Yeah, speaking, there we go. So um, that was the adventure, and we just grabbed some uh, water. Could we get like a whoop or something? Just anything. Yeah. Um, so Matt, we're about to switch over to the video. So uh, this was a map of the adventure. So yeah, it took 65 days, average 20 miles a day. Um, it, it was predominantly just me out there, obviously, but uh, you know, I had a couple of friends come up for different sections. Um, it was just this life-changing life experience, which I'm going to show you in this highlight video in just a second. But the one before that, I think it's quite important to <coughs> just capture this one moment of the adventure. And if I do ever write a book about the adventure itself, I think I'll call it the highs and low singular of Rome to home, because the adventure started on the 25th of August, and obviously winding up through Tuscany, Siena, you know, just that, that summer heat, and, and just, you know, after a year of putting this thing together, 
and the, the adventure just coming to life. I thought this is just, I, I felt so grateful to be out there and so fortunate to be doing what I was doing. And it was just coming to life with more colour and magic than I ever could have thought possible, the kindness of strangers, all that stuff. And on day 16, I woke up uh, to five messages from different friends and family members. So I was sharing these kind of daily videos. And I had five different messages from my friends and family saying, Dan, we're really worried about you. We think you're going too fast again. We think you're going too fast. You know, you're talking really fast in your videos that didn't really make sense. Your mileage is increasing. You, don't, you know you don't have to go that fast. You've, you've got your checkpoints. We're really worried about you. And they were absolutely right. And so there was, uh, in fact, they were definitely right that I was in a state of hypermania. So it wasn't full-scale mania like I was five years prior, but I was in a state of hypermania, which was, you know, I was on my way. And again, using the analogy of a Formula One car, I was in sixth gear and I wasn't far from slipping into seventh. So the first video I'm gonna play you, is pretty emotional, just to, just to preempt that one. But it's important to show it because it captures the moment that I was in and it captures what it meant to listen to my dream team, agree with them, and I just pressed record on the GoPro and I just started talking down the lens. Thanks, Matt. So as you heard guys, at this point we play two videos back to back. The first one is when I wake up on day 16 in a hypermanic state. So you can actually watch the video on YouTube if you punch in Rome to Home Hypermania, you should find it. And then the second one is the five minute highlight reel from the adventure. It's pretty epic and it ends with this pretty decent tune at the end. Let's dive back in. So you know, I've just got to share some of the highlights that weren't featured in the video. So it's yeah, so obviously standing at the Colosseum where you know, it was a really perfect morning to start the adventure. I set off at 7am, we're over there at sort of 6am, you had sort of this golden sunrise you know, coming through the Colosseum this way, which is just a perfect start. Um, a few quirky things happened. So when I got to Siena, this nun slipped me 20 euros when I stayed in this convent. She sort of paid me to stay the night in this convent, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, one night I saved 50 pounds by not staying in a hotel and slept in these stables instead. I thought, oh, that's quite late, I'll leave early, it'll be fine. Did all that, packed up, and then, uh, uh, yeah, I was packing up in the morning, 5 a.m., and I saw this tractor coming down. I thought, oh, man, I'm in trouble. Um, and then again, he gave me 25 euros to go and get breakfast the next morning, which is amazing. Um, and an Australian couple paid for my laundry when I was just sat there in my boxes, just because it had been too long since I'd done any washing. So they paid for my laundry and took me out for dinner. Um, and then obviously cr crossing over the Alps, two and a half days up, two and a half days down. That was just amazing in its own right. And then something happened which I just could never have written. So my brother is um, a Red Arrows pilot. Um, and he just finished um, a tour in, in the Middle East last summer. And then they were in um, southern Italy, and then I, I just clocked over a thousand miles when I was south of Paris. And I woke up to a video message from Red One and all the Red Arrows saying, Red Two's little brother, Dan, he's just clocked over a thousand miles. We'll see him back in the UK. Looking forward to seeing you, Dan. Keep it up. We'll see you when you get home. And I was like, So they're in southern Italy. Oh, I'm near Paris. They've got to be flying somewhere near here. So I messaged my brother with Google Maps and he's like, bro, like, if you can just get two miles from where you are now, exactly 2.26 on the button, uh, we'll see what we can do. So we're over there and I'm like, looking up, I'm looking up, it's crystal clear day. And then I saw nine streams of white smoke at 30,000 feet. So I'm going freaking fly with the red arrows on the adventure. It was unbelievable. You couldn't have fitted it. It was amazing. And then um, 
Yeah, and then when I got to the channel, my sister had got up at 2.30 in the morning to jump on a ferry to cross the channel for three and a half hours to wait for me then to go back. Uh, so she was there and it was amazing. Obviously those last five days leading up to the London Eye were just absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I finished the adventure last October. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing, you know, since then. And that, that's why I said the adventure does continue. You know, being in this room with you guys, for me, this is still part of the legacy, the adventure. It does continue. Um, and it's been amazing. You know, I finished the adventure last October. And again, you know, having delivered what I did and the people that, you know, reach out to you afterwards to show you how, just, you know, just to share how either the stories resonated in one way or another, or they reconnected as a family, or, you know, the grandmother's diagnosed with bipolar that's helped the family understand why she is like she is sometimes around Christmas time, what have you. So, you know, I just knew that I had to take things to another level. Uh, but evidently, you know, as soon as I finished the adventure, just relax and the lead up to Christmas, going into sort of January, February this year, I was like, the scale of the issue is, again, just it's so vast across society. You know, it's huge. Just those who unnecessarily suffer in silence. It's absolutely huge. And, you know, so now I'm sort of starting to see the groundwork in terms of taking the message to another level and looking at statistics and all that stuff. So last year in 2017, there were 5,000 280, five, sorry, 5,821 registered suicides in the UK in 2017. Over 5,800, and 75% of those were male, which says something in its own right. So that is a lot of people taking their own life. And the average is, is that 12 men will take their own life every day, and they're just the ones that we know about. And I've had people reaching out recently saying, you know, my brother's death wasn't recorded, or what have you. You know, so that statistic is, is hugely alarming um, you know that alarm bell went off over 5,800 times last year and to be honest you know the only stat I'm interested in is the UK population which is 66.6 million people because of the beliefs that everybody has something going on and so I've been you know really thinking about collaborating and working with people to you know to, to sort of drum home some of the stuff that I believe in and for me personally, you know, when, I, when I've been listening to people and, you know, these conversations afterwards, I hope that we have, I think it does come down to three key things. And those people who either take their lives, unfortunately, or are just suffering in silence, ultimately, I feel, don't have either one of or all of these three things, which is the courage to speak up when we're suffering, the support around them to speak up when they're suffering, or the safe space as well. So it's the courage, the support, and the safe space to speak up when we're struggling. And the great thing for every one of you guys is, is your HR team, DNI team, absolutely care about every one of you here. And the fact we're talking in this room is a safe space, and they really want to create that support network around you guys here. And as the year's been progressing, you know, I've really been paying attention to what works and what doesn't, and you know, taking my dialogue to another level, and it's getting bigger than just me sharing my story now. And so my response has been to launch a new social enterprise uh, called Are We OK UK? And uh, we can send around the details afterwards, but I've got a new podcast. Um, Matt, I'm going to be interviewing you a little bit after this. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've got a new podcast, and it's basically the home of everything I'm doing. You know, talking, <coughs> listening, creating, and collaborating with the likes of you guys. 
um, to take the message to another level, but it's super collaborative. You know, it's working with all the mental health charities out there, it's shining a light on all the resources that are available to every single one of us this afternoon if we wanted it, with coaches, counsellors, therapists, they're all out there. A lot of people just don't know about them or you know, maybe don't have the courage to reach them or the safe space where, or they've never experienced what it's like to be in the safe space to open up about what they're struggling with. So that is the crux of Are We Okay UK, which is to ultimately empower the UK to speak up when they're suffering by talking, listening, creating and collaborating. And my vision is, is that every single one of us has the courage, the support and the safe space to speak up. On a national level, obviously I'm hoping a lot of you would have seen the Heads Together stuff with the Royals. So, you know, Wills and, Wills and Harry and, remind me, Catherine, um, you know, they're absolutely driving forward the Heads Together campaign. So the fact that Royals are getting behind the national mental health conversation is amazing. You know, it's the first time in history our rules have ever gone there. Um, you know, it's just it's been absolutely remarkable what those guys are up to. We've now got a Minister for Suicide Prevention. In 2020, there's going to be compulsory mental health education or mental well-being education in every secondary school across the UK. And, you know, all of that stuff is absolutely amazing. And there's another organisation called Minds at Work, which I'm going to give Matt the details of, because they're trailblazing the community of that discussion about mental health in the workplace. And they're focusing on not just why we should be speaking up, but the how and the what as well. So, you know, we'll be paying attention to that as well. But the reason that I'm in this room is because Aristocrat are one of the early adopters with all of this as well. You know, I, this is a massive tide that has been you know, sweeping across our shores and around the world for too long. And the tide is turning. It is absolutely happening. It definitely is happening. And it's only going to happen if you've got passionate companies and organisations that really care about the community and the tribe that they've got at these workplaces. And as I said at the start, making this a, a life-enhancing place for every single one of you to come to work. And you know, I, I did some digging around the website. Um, I think this is an Australia. I think this is your, your your team in Australia. But you know, you can tell. You know, the, 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 you know, they've got the world community up there. The people. You know, it is about that. And you're in great hands. And I know I was in great hands linking up with Matt to give this talk because this is a safe environment. You're super, super supportive. So if I was going to speak to any of you who are struggling, um, and it's the same thing I say to my family members, my little nieces and nephews now, they're asking me, is, um, you know, especially in the workplace, I think if we are struggling with things ourselves, the number one thing is to never ever feel like you're burdening somebody. You know, if you wanna grab that lunch break or go and grab that coffee or whatever that looks like, you know, to grab five to 10 minutes and to frame it as, I'm struggling with this, you know, I'm not present at work. You know, I've got this thing going on at home or, you know, I've got this loved one and I'm just really struggling and it's just really kind of detracting from my energy. You're never ever burdening anyone, you know, especially if you frame it and say, look, I've, you know, and you can be jovial about it. It's amazing that when these conversations happen, you know, where the humour can play into it. But, you know, you frame the conversation. I'm really struggling with this. Can we just go and grab a beer? Can we go and grab a coffee? Can we just go and get some pressure and just talk about this and get it out of our system? Uh, the other thing is that, you know, in so many workplaces, I'm not necessarily saying it's the case here, you know, but um, I'm speaking to a construction company at the moment, and one of the problems that they're trying to get to is that on the different levels, they don't feel like they can take the conversation certainly upwards or downwards, really. If somebody's struggling, they don't feel they, they can seem, speak to their senior team. And I'm sort of thinking, well, if that is the tribe that you've got at the moment, fine. You know, and, and in many, you know, so many workplaces, that is still absolutely fine. 
if we can go sideways with the conversation. So, you know, whether it is in the warehouse or the finance team or downstairs in reception or wherever you are, you know, you, the likelihood is, is that you've got great people to the left and right of you that want to help you. And what I always say to that is to always flip it. You know, and you would be absolutely honoured, I presume, to know that you've been there for somebody. You know, if somebody's opened up to you and says, you know what, you really helped me yesterday. That was a really good chat. You know, I went home last night, I had a great chat with my, my kid or my mum or whatever it was. Amazing. I love that stuff. So always flip it. You know, if you think you're burdening anyone, flip it. You know, think about how you'd feel if a friend opened up to you in the workplace. I'm going to have to look at my notes for the third thing. Excuse me. Um, what was the first point? Yes. Is that we don't have to fix people either. And even this weekend, I had a friend reach out to me and said, my brother's best mate has just tried to take his own life. And he's in hospital and we don't know what to do. What can we do? And the first thing I said to him is that, you know, we, we're not professionals. You know, we don't know how to fix the problems that the people to the left and right of us have going on in their minds. But that is not our role. Our role is just to be a good listener and a friend and just be there for people. To know that they've been heard, that we're there for them, and it's empathy over sympathy. You know, so it's those three things. It's to not feel like we're burdening anybody. It's to look out for the people to the left and right of us. Flip it if you ever think you're burdening anyone. You're already in a safe space here anyway. I applaud everything your DNI team are doing. <sighs> and I lost my, lost my train of thought, which is we're not here to fix people. We're not professionals. It's just to create a safe environment to listen to the people to the left and right of us. Just be a friend. And there's 40 friends in this room. Um, so guys, that is me. I, I am going to be hanging around. Um, I'd love to connect with all of you guys. I really would. And if there's one thing that I always sign off with, sign off on is this, is that ultimately we're all suffering with something. So let's talk about it and let's show future generations how it's done. Thank you. So there we go, Dream Team. That was episode 004. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you know what to do. We will see you next time. Shake and bake.